All right, let's uh, look at uh, four passages uh, in a very quick overview manner. They're not just exclusively about women in ministry, but they are exclusively about women. And so uh, Mark 16 is where we'll begin, and we'll just look at this passage and work our way to the right in our Bibles. Uh, we will back up to Matthew to the left, but um, Mark 16... I love this passage, and when Danny had asked me to do a Q&A on this topic, I, my mind immediately went here, because in Mark 16, verse 1, Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint Jesus. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? When they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, the, in the significance of this passage, of course, it's a resurrection passage. But it's important to remember that there were actually several women involved in this group. Matthew identifies two, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of one of the disciples known as James the Less. Mark identifies another woman named Salome, who was the mother of James and John. Luke identifies another woman named Joanna, whose husband was Herod's steward. And John adds that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. In addition, Luke refers to, he just uses this phrase, the other women that are never explicitly identified. So what that means, there are at least five women in this group, probably seven or more. And they're given these instructions to go. And while they're on their way to spread the word, they got another surprise. Matthew tells us about this one. So go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew 28, verse 9 tells us, And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. I mean, how, how could we possibly put into words the emotion of this moment? Uh, utterly impossible. There's no way to really describe what this was like. Just a few days earlier, these very same women saw their world collapse. They looked on from a distance as their beloved teacher and master was hanging on a cross. Chapter 27, just the previous chapter, uh, verse 55 tells us, And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. They not only saw Jesus crucified, they saw his body prepared for burial and placed in the tomb. That's verse 59 here of this same chapter. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And listen, 
when, they, when that large stone was rolled against the door of the tomb, it was like a spike that was driven through their hearts. This, this one whom they loved and cherished and hoped for was gone. And as far as they knew, he was gone for good. But now, in chapter 28, verse 9, they see him alive, and the first word they hear him say is, Rejoice. Boy, did they rejoice. It's almost as if they just collapsed in joy and adoration and worship. As, as they were bowed before Jesus, the verse tells us they held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then the angel reiterated the instructions that had been given, or Jesus reiterated the instructions that had been given by the angel. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What a scene this is. These, these women, five, six, seven, large group, we don't know how many, they are the, the first ones to see the resurrected Christ. They are filled with emotion, worshiping at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus accepting their worship. Look over from there to Luke chapter 8. This is not about the resurrection, but one of the ladies who was a part of the resurrection group is mentioned here, and this is a text that I would guess that probably hardly anyone in this room is familiar with, which is one of those obscure texts that we read right past, but it says this in Luke 8, verse 1, Now it came to pass afterward that he, that's Jesus, went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. So that doesn't surprise us, the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles, they're with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Now, a lot of people who know a little bit about the Bible know about her. She's such a famous uh, uh, character in the, in the New Testament because of being released from seven demons. But look at the next verse. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. If, if I had asked you before just now, in, before this chapel, uh, who supported the ministry of Jesus, my guess is you would have had no clue. I mean, Jesus did get supported, by the way. He didn't go around turning stones into bread, right? I mean, that's what the temptation was. He was supported. He, there was a treasurer in the group, Judas, who collected the money, and of course, he took from it, he pilfered from it. But Jesus had supporters. Jesus had people who provided for him. We don't know everyone who did, but Luke specifically mentions these women as the ones who supported his ministry. And again, I say, had I asked you the question 15 minutes ago, who supported the ministry of Jesus? Who made it possible for him to travel around, not have to do any vocational work? You probably would not have known that a major, at least according to Luke, a major part of his support team financially was this group of women. And then another passage that came to mind as I was thinking about uh, this topic, Acts, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 36 it says at Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha. Now, when I read that about the disciple, that reminds me of where we were just at in Luke. What is so unusual about that is that those women are listed with the disciples of Jesus. They certainly weren't 
part of the 12 apostles, but that was very unusual. Rabbis in the first century did not have women as disciples. Jesus did. And here we have another example, a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did, but it happened in those days that she became sick and died when they had washed her and laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, obviously, resurrection is not a common occurrence. I mean, it's just not as if people are raised from the dead all over the place. Even Jesus, it was very limited in his own ministry. In the book of Acts, it's very limited. And yet, here we have this remarkable story of when God granted Peter the opportunity to raise someone from the dead, we might have thought, well, you know, that's going to be reserved for someone that we would label as very important, and it's this precious woman who lived such a life of good works and was, so, uh, was held in such high esteem among the believers. And then one other passage, uh, the book of Romans, the next book in the New Testament, Romans 16, the very closing part of the letter, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul's closing greetings. He says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. The very first commendation or greeting that Paul gives in this long list is Phoebe. And here's the interesting part about this, I'm sure. Uh, many of you know this, that the word that is translated servant in verse 1, and that is the case in every one of our English Bibles, right? Nobody, if it's not, alert me, but I think I've checked New King James, King James, NASB, NIV, ESV, they all translate that way, and I, I think that's right. It's, it is the word diakonos, but also what is significant is it is the same word translated deacon elsewhere in the New Testament. So because of this unique commendation and because of the unique role that this lady seems to have, as Paul says, listen, whatever she needs, you need to help her, etc. She's, she's been a helper of many, myself also. It is possible that she occupied the office of deacon. The problem is you can't put the, the Greek word diakonos in a feminine form because it is masculine. So if you want to refer to a female deacon, you can't just use that term without some other descriptions, and that is possibly what Paul is referring to here, which would line up with what he says uh, also in Timothy. So anyway, those are just four passages. They're not all interrelated other than the fact that women are prominent in all four of those passages, uh, the Mark passage, the Luke, the Acts, and now here in Romans. So just to sort of maybe prime the pump and get you thinking on that topic, now we'll sort of launch from there into questions.
All right, good. Let's close in prayer. Then. So, uh, All right. Who's going lo- to who's going to be first there to give us questions? Yes, ma'am. Okay, uh, the question is, what does my wife's ministry look like and how has it changed? Uh, One of the things I did when I came here, both as youth pastor, and I think a lot of you know my story, but quickly just to give it, I came here on staff as youth pastor. I was only in the role 11 months, and then uh, the senior pastor uh, came to me one day and said he's going to be going to another church, and he asked if I was willing to fill in in the interim until a new pastor was Uh, brought on board and I said I would be willing to do that and the interim turned into permanent. So that's sort of the long story short. So I candidated for the position of youth pastor and then about 15 months later I candidated for the position of senior pastor and both had formal interviews, a lot of questions, etc. And one of the things that I said in both interviews, both for the youth pastor position but especially for the senior pastor position, I said to the board members who were interviewing me, I said I just, I don't mean this to be offensive, and I'm sorry I'm going to be so forward about this, but I would like to make it clear that if you feel the Lord directing you to bring me into this position, I want you to know that you're hiring me and not my wife. And I said that right up front. I said, this is not a two-for-one deal, you know. Um, I said, now, my wife loves the Lord, and she will minister, and she will serve, and she will do that because she loves the Lord and she wants to serve, but she won't do it because she's my wife and is expected to. So I said, I realize that you as a board can't control uh, sort of the assumptions, you know, those sort of non-spoken expectations that would be on a pastor's wife. I said, I know you can't control them, but I just want it clear from the very beginning that uh, we probably won't yield to those and that, that whatever my wife does, she, will, she would do if she weren't my wife. If she were a part of this church, that's what she would do. So that's what she's done. And really, uh, her heart has been more for little ones. Uh, she, has, she has taught now and even for a while was sort of department head of the, uh, the four-year-old through kindergarten department here in our church, just because that's where her heart is and her niche is. So she's taught in that department now for, oh my, I don't know, 25 years or something like that. Because that's just where her heart is. Now, in addition, she meets with gals. She's done discipleship uh, because that's just a part of what all of us as Christians should do is just meet, you know. To So she's done that with gals through the years. Um, she doesn't like doing speaking every now and then. The ladies' ministry group of our church will ask her to speak at something. And she's only done it like two or three times in 30-some years. And every time she swears she'll never do it again. Uh, but anyway, so that's kind of been her role. And you say, how has it changed? It really hasn't changed a lot, only because of where she feels her niche is, her interests, her gifting. And so it's, it's been in that, the four-year-old through kindergarten department for, again, I don't know how many years, 25 to 28 years, something like that. So um, she, she, she is musical. I started to say was musical because she doesn't do a lot of music now. She, in, in Bible college, was a piano and voice major. So early on in our ministry, um, it, the, those who whoever happened to be leading, heading up music would have her sing or play the piano. She hasn't done a lot of that for a while now. She just doesn't trust her voice now <laughs> as far as singing. And she just doesn't have time to do the piano because she's always doing something else. But she occasionally has done that. But uh, not a lot of change, and um, but not a lot of... Um, 
sort of what you, what a lot of churches consider this is sort of the typical role of the pastor's wife. She's going to lead the women's ministry, or she's going to, and that's just not my wife. She's not done that. So, and our church family has been great about that. Oh, I'm sure there are some unspoken expectations that you know people would have of her, but our church family really has been pretty good to realize she's just who she is, and she's going to serve in the way that the Lord has gifted her, and and not to try to expect her then to get over here in this role or, or you know, that type of thing. So does that answer your question? Okay, good, good. Yes, Jeanette. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of yeah, vacancies that go on about that. But if you have commentary on that passage specifically when it's talking about women teaching others, but then it goes on to say um, to love their husbands. So people will point to that and be like, oh, see, their ultimate goal of a woman is to be in marriage and loving their husbands. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, the question, if you couldn't hear it, was just to comment on Titus 2, uh, the, the familiar passage about. Uh, uh, older women teaching younger women to love their husbands, their children, etc. And is that the ultimate role, as it's often presented, or the only role? Uh, and I would say this, that uh, we need to be careful about taking a passage like this uh, and, and saying that this is the only or the ultimate role, just like it would be as wrong to point to a passage like 1 Timothy 3, which talks about elders and men being elders and say that is the only role for men or the ultimate role. In other words, the only way you as a man can really be impactful in the kingdom is to be an elder. That's just not true. And it's not accurate biblically. Now, is it an important role? It's a very important role. It's a key role, yes. So in a similar way, I would say this role here that Paul describes to Titus about the older women teaching the younger women's to love their husbands, to love their children. Is that a key role? Absolutely. Is it a critical role? Absolutely. Uh, because the fact is that most women get married and have children. Now, not all do, but most do. So that shows why it's so key and so critical. But is it the only role? By no means is it the only role. Just like the only role for a man is not to be an elder or pastor. So uh, I would just say keep it in biblical balance. It's not surprising it's here because it is such a key role and is, is so common um, in the body of Christ as far as women getting married and having children. And so therefore, since that is so common, you want godly women who can model that and pass that on to others, absolutely. Uh, so I would not disagree with any of that. What I disagree with is defining it as the only role. So does that help? Okay, good. Good. Another question. Now a guy can ask according to the instructions because we've had two gals. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, have you or uh, Grace Bible Church ever considered a woman for the deacon's position? Uh, so the question, have we ever considered a woman for a, a deacon position? And the answer to that is yes, we have. Uh, I think most of our leaders would, we've not discussed this extensively, though we have discussed it, would recognize that the, the grammar, the structure of 1 Timothy 3 is recognizing the potential offer, uh, office of deaconess, even though you can't put that word into the feminine. So we've, uh, we've talked about that. Uh, the difficulty we have is that the women in our church who really are deaconesses, in other words, they're female, the, the Greek word dakinos, servant, 
who are servants of the Lord, servants of the church, servants of the spiritual leaders. Uh, the, the problem that we, the primary problem we have is that the, when we have a number of women like that, is that they don't want to be, they don't want that office. Uh, for example, just this last year, we had, uh, the, the way we work our process here as far as nominating leaders is that we start in September by an, appointing a nominating committee of about five people from our elder and deacon board. And then we go to the congregation and say, you've got the next two months, September and October, to nominate people from our church that you think God has raised up to serve either as an elder or deacon. So we let the congregation start the process. They give those names to the nominating committee. And then after two months, we close that. And then for the month of November, we discuss those nominations, those recommendations, interview the people, etc. Then the nominating committee brings the slate of names to the elder board in early December to see if the elder board is comfortable with all of them. If the elder board is, then the elder board passes along that slate to the full board, which is our elders and deacons. And then in January, the congregation then comes back and affirms those. So it's a very long process, a thorough by design, so that we don't get the wrong people in the position. And we let it start with the congregation and end with the congregation. So we have congregational involvement, but we're still elder-led. Well, all that to say this, this last year we actually had two ladies that were nominated to be deacons. Uh, because they are clearly deaconesses. I mean, they, they are servants. They're, uh, uh, maybe this isn't the best word, but I'll say it this way. They're high profile in the sense that they, they are known in the congregation. They serve, etc. And so I went to each of those ladies and I said, hey, you may or may not know that you were nominated to be a deacon or deaconess. And uh, both of them said to me, no way. They said, um, we love what we're doing. We don't need a title or a position. We love the ministry that God has given us. And uh, that's not been uncommon so that we've never actually had a deaconess or a lady as a deacon, though we would not be opposed to that because we believe that office is defined in 1 Timothy 3. So in answer to your question, yes and no. Yes, we have considered that. No, we haven't had any takers. So, yes, right. Oh, that, good. Yeah, no, that's a good thought, Ryan. And if you didn't hear all of what Ryan's saying, it's just that in their church, that uh, similar dynamic as far as some ladies that were hesitant to have the position or the title, and that part of it may have been that if they were younger, wondering how the older ladies would view them or look at them. Uh, I certainly could see that dynamic being the case. And I think another one is this, uh, uh, sort of closely related. Um, is that in so many of our churches, and I say our, I'm just talking about Bible-believing Christians, in so many of our churches, our titles have been 
inadvertently confusing. What I mean is I grew up in a church where there was a pastor and then there were deacons and then there were trustees. And I can remember as a teenager wanting to understand what God's word had to say about the church. So I went to the Bible and I tried to find trustees and I couldn't find them anywhere in the Bible. And it just so confused me, like, well, why do we have trustees if they're not in the Bible? And then the more I studied the Bible and church, uh, you know, ecclesiology in the Bible, church offices, I began to realize what was happening in my church was this. We had deacons who were actually serving as elders and trustees who were actually serving as deacons. So once I got that straight, it all made sense that our deacons were elders and our trustees were deacons. But... Now, plug that into this, this discussion. And so it is clear from 1 Timothy 3 that the Holy Spirit says through Paul that the office of elder slash shepherd slash pastor is reserved for men. But if you have deacons or people who are called deacons serving in that role, and now you say to a godly woman who reveres Scripture, we'd like you to serve as a deacon, she's thinking, you're asking me to violate Scripture. You see, in other words, you're asking me to, to play a role that I don't think Scripture uh, has. And so a lot of times our terminology has really also created that. So coming back to your comment, Ryan, I think a lot of, uh, it's certainly possible that a lot of the older uh, women in the church would have been in or grown up in that scenario where the deacons were the spiritual leaders of the church. And so, understandably, they may feel some tension if, well, we're going to put these ladies in an office and call them deacons. Well, aren't we violating Scripture? So we, you're right. What we need to do is get, a, get ahead of that curve and first explain what the terms are, the titles are, and what the roles are, as the elders are shepherds, deacons are, the word means servants, servants of the Lord, servants of the church, servants of the other spiritual leaders. And once we have all that clear in our mind, I think it's less of a barrier. But I, I can see why the barrier would be there. Yeah, so I think you've hit on a, a valid point there. Yes? Sure, sure. Yeah, the question is uh, in Mongolia, and this is the case. I mean, I've, I've lost track of the number of times I've been asked this through the years in the mission field context, how many times there are scenarios where uh, the men won't step up, so the women are the ones doing it, that they, they do step up. And, you know, I, I want to be careful here to not make just a generalization, because every field is different and unique, etc. But I, first thing I would say is I, I think it's certainly commendable when you have women who are on the mission field and want to see the work of God go forward. Uh, and I understand the dilemma they're in. Um, so I would just, my counsel to them would be, you know, um, it, it's going to be awkward any way you do it. So in other words, I've heard some say, well, disciple the men to do it. Well, who? The women disciple the men to do that? That's still as awkward as the women doing it. I mean, what's, so, uh, but the other thing that I think sometimes isn't thought through is that um, if the women are doing it, in many cases, the men won't. So they may be trying to do, you know, commendable, being commendable, et cetera, like somebody needs to do it. But if you step up and do it, it may not leave. The, so there's no easy answer. That's, 
I was just, uh, last week I had lunch with uh, Justin Peters. Some of you may recognize his name. He has a, a ministry uh, that's basically just ministry based on the book of Jude that just exposes uh, false teachers. Um, <clears throat> you know, all the, the, primarily the word of faith movement, you know, that uh, if you're, you know, if you're right with God, he'll make you wealthy and healthy and all of that. It's a great ministry. He has a tough one because he just the bullseyes on him. But uh, he just, we had lunch last Thursday, and he just had flown in uh, Wednesday. I said, what are you doing in Bozeman? He texted me, hey, could we have lunch? I said, yeah, what are you doing in Bozeman? And he, so when we got together for lunch, he said, I just flew in from Nicaragua yesterday. I went to the capital, Managua, and he said I, it was a pastor's conference where he presented his seminar, 140 pastors. Um, and he said, um, in every one of these churches without exception, so 140 pastors, he said, in every one and without exception, the ratio was close to 90% women, 10% men, out of 140 churches. So there's the, exactly the dilemma you're talking about. So how, how do you, and it's, it's not an easy, yeah, it's not an easy puzzle to unscramble. But, but I think that, you know, a godly woman who's there sharing the gospel, leading people to Christ, um, you know, maybe a possible way she can do it is to, if a man comes to faith in Christ, somehow if she can get materials to him or something that will help him grow and sort of behind the scenes saying, hey, maybe God saved you first in this community because he wants you to, to lead others. So there's a way it can be done, but it's, it's not, not simplistic, yeah. which means I completely dodged your question, I know. So. <laughs> Good, Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then the, like, the reason that he gives for that is because Adam came first and that it was Eve who was deceived. Yes. Um, so how would you explain Paul's use of those examples and what would it look like for women to be teaching under authority? Sure. Okay. So if you didn't hear the question, basically... 1 Timothy 2, Paul's instructions there, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about not permitting a woman to teach or have authority, and then the reasons he gives, etc. This obviously is one of the key, the, one of the key passages, maybe the key passage on the topic in the sense of uh, my view of, you know, if people ask, what is your view of women in ministry? It's really simple for me to define it. It's this. I believe that God has ordained men to be the elders slash shepherds slash pastors, whatever term you want to use, in the church, and then under that, women serve. So whatever that role is. Well, you know, so it's just pretty easy to say. Underneath that, they can serve and do whatever. Uh, so, and this is the, the passage that says that, and, and we know, we don't have to guess what Paul is saying here, because even though we have a chapter break here, there is no break in thought. He says, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of an overseer, he desires a good work. So clearly he has in, in mind the context, shepherds, elders, pastors, etc. And so he says, and you know, I say Paul says, and that's okay to say Paul says, but my only hesitancy in wording that way is that Paul so often is wrongly confused or, or accused of being a male chauvinist, it, it completely unfounded. If you read Paul's letters in the cultural, historical 
context of the day in which they were written, he was incredibly progressive. Incredibly progressive. Let me give you one example. I just taught Sunday here at our church, not in, it is in a Sunday school class. Since we had a guest speaker, I was asked to come in to speak to our marriage tune-up class. Uh, it's just couples that have been married a while just to strengthen their marriage, uh, to teach on the t- subject of sexuality within marriage. So I did. And one of the passages we looked at was 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, let the husband render to the wife the affection due to her, and let the wife render to the husband the affection due to him. Now, you know, we read that and we just like, oh, yeah, whatever. In that day, that was totally revolutionary. Wow. How? You say, why? Because in that day, in the Roman context, and sadly, even in the Jewish context, who cares about what is due to the woman? Right? I mean, that was the attitude. So the affection due her, she is due affection. Paul was not a male chauvinist. So, but Paul wrote this, but he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And those are, in a sense, they're different, but they're describing the same thing. The, the role of a shepherd, elder, is to teach and have authority. So you, you could almost paraphrase, I don't, I don't permit a woman to be an elder, okay? Uh, but to be in silence. And then he gives the two reasons, as you alluded to. He gives the, the we just want to uh, title them creation and fall. Now, why does he choose these? Well, I think the reason why he chooses these, a couple reasons, uh, but the main thing, if I were to summarize, is because he wants to give theological reasons, not cultural reasons. So that's the whole point. So he roots it in creation and fall to say, so that no one says in our day, oh, that was just for then, because he's just talking about the culture. Well, if he, if he, he wanted to base his reasoning on culture, he could have said something completely different. But he chose creation and fall. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. uh, But the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, again, it would be easy for us to read that as sort of Paul taking a swipe at women. Well, think through what he's saying here. The woman was deceived. The man defiantly chose to sin. There was no, he wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. So it's not like it's painting the woman in a bad light. Oh, she was deceived, but the man wasn't deceived. You're right, he wasn't deceived. He, uh, not that it was an excuse for Eve to be deceived, but the man wasn't. He just did what he did. He chose to do it. But the point, again, is that he's rooting his, the basis of his uh, argument in theological reasons. So, for that reason, women are not to be elders. They're not to be... Uh, shepherds, they're not to be pastors, teachers over men. So that excluded, I don't know of any other role they can't have. So that's maybe the simplest way uh, I I would answer it, is that if they're not as a shepherd, uh, elder, pastor, teaching over men, then they can, you name it, just fill in the blank. Does that answer or not really? Follow up if not. Okay, all right. Well, feel free if you want to do a follow-up to that. Um, well, I think you clarified well that he rooted his reasons in theological reasons and not cultural reasons, but, like, what does he mean by those theological reasons? Like, why does he point those? What is oh, I see. Sure. Okay, well, well, what I think he proves with the first one, the Adam was formed first, then Eve, is simply that... Uh, 
that's what happened, and God's design, even in the order of creation, was to emphasize that men are to lead. We just were talking about the problem on the mission field in so many places where they won't lead. So this is just, you know, epidemic in, in, in the church. And so uh, God's design is for men to step up to lead. And so he, he indicated that, illustrated that by the order of creation. And then on the other one, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. I think the reason why he brings that one in is because if you go back to the fall account, the, the, the account of the fall, what happened is you did have basically a reversal of roles. So in other words, Adam was supposed to be leading, and the text is very clear that when this conversation is going on between Eve and the serpent, that Adam is with her. Those are the two words used, with her. He's there and not saying anything. And so, basically, I think Paul uses this example to say, you know what, if we ignore God's design, His pattern, His structure, we do so to our own peril. Look at what happened. The first time there was this refusal to stay, follow God's design, it ends up that the whole human race is in sin. All of us, men and women. So I think that's why he uses those two examples, because one is a positive example, positive reinforcement, the order of creation shows us God's design. The other is a negative example. When we don't follow God's pattern, we mess things up and we get in a, in, in a mess. So that's, that's why. Go, oh, yeah, back here. Right, so in case, in case you didn't hear that, I'm glad you brought it up because I have seen commentators who use this to basically say women are more easily deceived. But where's that in the text? That's not, it's not what he says. That's not even the text. It just states the fact. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived. But it's just easy for preachers to launch from there, male preachers, to launch from there. And, oh, women are more easily deceived. That's, listen, some men are easily deceived, more easily deceived, and some women are more easily deceived. That's, yes. The point is God's design, God's order, convoluting or ignoring it, not inherent capability of who's more, de yeah, more deceivable. Yes. Sure, sure. Okay, if you didn't hear the question, um, it's, you know, well, if women can't teach men or be a pastor elder, but you make them a deaconess, etc., uh, and at what stage or age can they teach, etc.? So I would say this. Um, it's very important to understand that there is a dis completely distinct role biblically between elder and deacon. Again, our churches have confused this with the, the titles we give people, but in the Bible, there's a clear, distinct role. In fact, it's interesting that when Paul writes Titus, he doesn't even mention deacons, because not every church in the first century would have needed deacons. Uh, their role comes out of Acts 6, whereas the church grew and they needed more servants to help with the ministry, 
then you add deacons. But if a church is really small, you may not even need deacons. But you do need spiritual leaders, slash elders, slash whatever term you want to use. But when we confuse the two terms, then we confuse ourselves. So, therefore, there is no contradiction, you ask about our church, there's no contradiction in us being willing to put a woman in the office of deacon, which means servant, someone who serves the Lord, serves other spiritual leaders, serves the church. There's no contradiction in that because we're not putting them in the office of elder. So can then, the assumption is, in fact, the only difference in qualification between deacon and elder, interestingly, if you compare the lists, is that a, an elder has to be able to teach. That is never stated of a deacon. Now, it's great if a deacon can teach, but it's not a requirement. Elders have to be able to teach. So, and the reason is because the role of elder slash shepherd slash pastor, the assumption is, is that this is the group that will be teaching in the church. They will be doing the teaching, the instructing, the shepherding, etc. Deacons are the ones that will be serving. So to have a woman in that role, there's no contradiction. Now, can you have a woman who is a deacon or even not a deacon who's gifted at teaching? Yes. And you ask the question, at what age do you, you know, what age is that different? What we've chosen to do as a church is that we sort of make that cutoff around junior high. In other words, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have a woman teaching uh, our young men in the high school group. Um, again, you, you know, that's a pretty wide age. It could be 14 to 18, but some of them are 18, 19, considered adults. So it just kind of gets blurry, you know, knowing exactly where. But that's just what we've chosen. We've just said uh, uh, we feel biblically women in our church can teach other women, can teach uh, males up to about junior high-ish age is sort of where we make the cutoff. Because... If you get much older than that, are you starting to violate that women are not to be teaching men? So that's where, I, that's where the tension comes for us. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. Yeah, back here. Well, I think the fact that Paul or the Holy Spirit led Paul to base his statement on non-cultural issues shows that the issue transcends culture. In other words, I mean, Paul was in a Jewish culture, he was in a Roman culture, Greek culture, didn't matter. So it doesn't matter for us if we're in a, an African culture or in a South American culture, this still outlines God's design. So uh, would it be right? Can you find exceptions? I don't know of any exceptions. Again, the Holy Spirit could have given us exceptions, but he didn't. Yeah, that's a good point. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, it's the, the earlier question, you know, the, the work is to be done. It's like, what if men aren't stepping up? Women who have a heart for God and a heart for ministry, it's a predicament they find themselves in. So I think we had a lady over here. So this might, I can't see the clock back there. I think we're, this will probably be our last one. Yes.
Sure. 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 So the question was now teaching. Teaching is a broad term. It could be like teaching in front of the church, teaching a Bible class, teaching a home Bible study. There's just a lot of old teaching one on one or small. So, you know, at what point does that maybe start violating something there? Uh, and, and, and the comment was made, well, what if you, as someone who's known the Lord a lot longer and known the Bible, maybe a friend of yours, uh, a guy comes to faith in Christ, should you not share anything with him? Or, should, you know, are, are you violating anything? Um, I, what I would say is interesting. I, I think First Timothy 2 may address that. It's interesting to note that when Paul says here, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, uh, in Greek, both of those infinitives are in the present tense which emphasizes ongoing action. So maybe the Holy Spirit is hinting something there, or giving us a little hint. In other words, a friend of yours from high school comes to faith in Christ, and you say, oh, I'm so excited. Let me share this with you. Are you sinning? No. Uh, is it wise to be in an ongoing role of discipling him? Probably not. You know, even just a wisdom issue, just because, you know, uh, is he going to, you know, we, we all appreciate people who help us spiritually, so is all of a sudden his affections toward you going to start growing? You just can complicate things. So, so no, you're not sending to share with another brother something the Lord has taught you. That's not, you know, even though it may be instructing him, giving him insight into something he doesn't know. But it's, uh, you know, if you're in an ongoing role, that's probably where you're now uh, ignoring wisdom. Yeah. All right, great questions. Good, good job, gang. Let's... Uh, Close in prayer, and I can stop sweating, all right? <laughs> Father, thank you for just uh, your, um, your concern for your work and for your people as we wrestle through these issues that we are talking about here today. Give us clear thinking. We know that so many things confuse us, um, just circumstances that we're in, and we try to sort those out. And even, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes even... Uh, well-meaning titles that are given to people. We don't really use those accurately. Just so many dynamics. And even as Ryan mentioned, sometimes the, the distinction in the body of Christ between older saints and younger saints and just all these dynamics. So you know our hearts. We just want to know what you want. We want to understand your word and then live it and share it and follow it. So grant us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.